Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 27th, 2018. This is episode 2258 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, the monster show of the week, the expert counsel Q&A show. If you want to send in a question for a show like this, Please do not call the Think Line. Please follow the instructions, because a lot of times if you call the Think Line, I will never send it to the proper expert counsel person, because it will get so old before I screen it out and figure out what you've done, that it's time to move on and do other things. I'm big on procedure. Procedure for the expert counsel. Send me an email. TSPC expert in the subject line. Ask your question in one to two sentences. Hit the return key a couple times, and then give me your details. If you do that, I will send it off to the expert counsel member of your choice, and you will probably hear your answer sooner or later on the show. Uh, that said, some of the council members tend to be on the pikers list from time to time, but I do have a good uh, lineup for you today. I got dealing with jet lag from Gary Collins, creating portable shade for livestock with Darby Simpson, the ins and outs of DE water filtration with Old Doc Bones, getting the best results when hiring a consultant from Nick Ferguson, making the transition to a single-income household, with Mike and Sue Laprise, the state of blogging and blogging income in 2018 with Nicole Awesome Sauce, who we just had as our special guest on Wednesday, a lightning round of financial and investing questions from John Pugliano himself, and why I recommend an emergency fund when paying off debt when Excel says not to. That makes sense. It will when we get to it. Before we get to your questions, uh, let's take a little bit of a historical context in our day. As, as I've said recently, David Verne is uh, off doing other things, so he's not able to do the TSP Wiki entries for the history segment uh, to, uh, for a few weeks. So I've been doing a little segment called This Day in History. We're going to go back on this day in history, July 27th to 1953. On this day in 1953, the armistice ended the Korean War. Uh, the, United, the Korean War actually began on June 25, 1950, when Communist North Korea invaded South Korea. Almost immediately, the United States secured a resolution from the United Nations calling for a military defense of South Korea against North Korean aggression. In a matter of days, U.S. land, air, and sea forces joined the battle. The U.S. intervention turned the tide of the war, and soon the U.S. and South Korean forces were pushing into North Korea and toward the nation's border with China. In November and December of 1951, hundreds of thousands of troops from the People's Republic of China began heavy assaults against the American and South Korean forces. The war eventually bogged down into a battle of attrition. In the U.S. presidential election of 1952, Republican candidate Dwight D. Eisenhower strongly criticized President Harry S. Truman's handling of the war. After his victory, Eisenhower adhered to his promise to go to Korea. His trip convinced him that something new was needed to break the diplomatic logjam at the peace talks that had begun in July 1951. Eisenhower began to publicly hint the United States might use its nuclear arsenal to break the military stalemate in Korea. He allowed the national Chinese government on Taiwan to begin harassing air raids of mainland China. The president also put pressure on his South Korean ally to drop some of its demands in order to speed up the peace process. Uh, whether or not Eisenhower's threats of nuclear attack helped by July 1953, all sides involved in the conflict were ready to sign an agreement 
ending the bloodshed. The armistice signed on July 27th established a committee of representatives from neutral countries to decide the fate of thousands of prisoners of war on both sides. It was eventually decided that POWs could choose their own fate, stay where they were, or return to their homelands. A new border between North and South Korea was drawn, which gave South Korea more territory and demilitarized the zone between the two nations. The war cost the lives of millions of Koreans and Chinese, as well as over 50,000 Americas, if Americans. It had been a frustrating war for America, who were used to forcing the unconditional surrender of their enemies. Many also could not understand why the United States had not expanded the war into China or used its nuclear arsenal. As government officials were well aware, however, such actions would likely have prompted World War III. So when we look at this, that means that the armistice, not the beginning of the war, but the armistice itself was signed today 65 years ago. This is interesting because yesterday something happened. The remains of, of quite a few uh, believed to be American soldiers were finally returned to America by the North Koreans. And uh, it's a really solemn thing. And it, it, it troubles me that the media is still more concerned about some side chick that Donald Trump had than the fact that North Korea has ret returned the remains of our soldiers after 65 years. It, it says a lot about what the media really cares about. And you might think that's a new thing. Guys, I'm pretty old. I'm not old enough to remember the Korean War. But I'm going to tell you, the media has always been into dividing us. They've been the main arsenal of the state, honestly, in doing that division. They just over the years have picked sides, and once they pick a side, they run with it pretty hard. We know what side they picked now. But no matter which side they pick, just remember this. It's never your side. Uh, you need to discern for yourself the truth about things. And uh, as we always say when we talk about history, it doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. With that, let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can uh, help support us by joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get... Uh, discounts to about 70 different companies. Use those discounts to get your money back for your membership and you get to support the show. And when you do the math, it comes out to supporting our show at about 18.3 cents an episode. So we really do appreciate it when you become a supporting member. We do try to work hard to make sure that you get back uh, your investment in us. And I, I want to make a personal statement to you guys uh, today about the MSB and the money you guys spend when you join it. That's exactly how I view it. It's an investment and myself, the show, the community, and the work that I do. And I always try to return that investment to you, not just in discounts and additional content uh, that you get as a member, but in every single day that I put a show together, I'm cognizant of the fact that I get to do this because you guys support me. You guys believe in me enough that you think I'm valuable enough to listen to and to financially support. Um, and... I feel my obligation then to make this show the best that it can be. And hopefully I'm doing that for you. So to all of you who have ever supported me at any time in any way, shape, or form or shared this show with others, let me just give you a heartfelt thank you. As we go into our first question today, this one for Gary Collins. Dealing with jet lag. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com, where I discuss all things of going off the grid, simple living, health, wellness, and just living a better gosh darn life. Uh, good question today. I've done, uh, did quite a bit of international travel when I was in the government. 
and experimented, we all did, with many different ways to try and fight jet lag and attempt to avoid it. I'll give you my quick tips and tricks that I found. I tried a couple things that did not work. I tried adjusting my sleep schedule before I left, trying to get on the time where I was going. Never worked. So what I would do, what I found worked the best is I would take red eyes and get to my destination, even stateside if I was going west coast to east coast, whatever, because even that three hours will mess you up. But I would uh, try and arrive in my location in the early morning. That way I had the whole day ahead of me. If I slept on the flight over, it, it really wouldn't mess with me too much because I still had the whole day. So you got to stay up the entire day, though. Don't take a nap. Don't say, oh, I'm just going to crash. You got to stay up. And, you know, if you can drink some coffee, get some exercise, too. That was one of the first things I would do, too, is I'd unpack, hit the gym, go out, get my stuff done, stay out during the day, come at night, get a good eight, nine hours of sleep. If I could, nine, you know, as government, I didn't always get that. But since you'll be either vacationing, you can do that. Wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, do your normal routine, and you'll be okay. You're not going to feel great. Jet lag is just, it's unavoidable. If you have difficulty sleeping, take melatonin. That was my go-to. And if, if that doesn't work, hit the nighttime NyQuil or even Tylenol PM. I took that every once in a while when I was having a really bad time sleeping. Uh, but melatonin almost always worked. Like I said, three to five milligrams. Try three first. That doesn't work. Then go to the five milligrams. Remember, melatonin has a 30, about a 30 minute window. So once you take it, once you start feeling sleepy, don't fight it. Just go with it. If you fight it, you'll actually fight your way through it and you won't fall asleep. I've found that with not only with me, but with many other people. So some people go, oh, I'm not ready yet, but I took it, you know, 30 minutes ago, I'm getting tired and they'll fight it. And then they're up all night long and they're just tired. So when you get back home, same thing, try and come back early morning, reset your schedule. Um, again, exercise when you get back, you know, go for a run, work out, whatever, get the blood flowing, keep it moving. That's the best advice I can give you. And heck, enjoy the heck out of your anniversary too. Congratulations. Uh, guys, remember I'm an MSB member, uh, company member. So you get 10% off free shipping on all, all orders. No matter if you buy one item or a hundred, I prefer you'd buy a hundred, but one works just fine too. And, uh, the new books are doing really well. The simple life series got a lot of great feedback from that selling really well. If you've bought one, please leave me a review on Amazon. I would really appreciate it. I live and die by those things. Remember I'm self-published. I do all this stuff on myself by myself to get you the good information. All right, guys, take care. Okay, good advice from Gary there. Next up, I have a question for full-time farmer Darby Simpson on uh, portable shade. And the uh, caller was uh, the the, or the 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 member of the audience was actually pretty slick and managed to uh, slip in an additional question about mineral supplementation. So, with that in mind, Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farm and the Grass Fed Life Podcast. This week, I've got a question from Jacob up in Michigan wanting to know about mobile shade structures. He's looking to build something for roughly 20 sheep and 5 steers, and he's wanting to know what kind of shade do I have for my animals. And he's got a second question in here. He snuck one in. He wants to know uh, if I feed a mineral uh, via cafeteria style or if I give my animals a mix of minerals. 
if so, what do I give them access to? Uh, some details about Jacob is that he's up in uh, Michigan, as I mentioned, and a lot of his family land is currently in row crop. There's a little bit of pasture that he's grazing, uh, but he doesn't have very many trees or fence rows to get his animals up against for shade. Uh, he's planning to take a wagon running gear and putting a couple of IBC totes on it for portable water and then putting some kind of a roof structure on it as well as mineral feeders so he only has to move one wagon between paddocks. Um, Jacob, I'll answer your second question first. We do not currently use a cafeteria-style cafeteria mineral feeder. It's something I really haven't researched a whole lot. It's something I feel like maybe I should be doing it. Maybe I don't need to. I, probably I do. I, I just I haven't implemented it Um Minerals are not cheap, as you have probably found out. It's one more thing I have to move every day, uh, so it's just not something I've tackled yet. What we give our cows in the summer is, frankly, just red mon mineral salt. Now, that's got trace minerals of like 26 or 28 different things, uh, plus the salt, which they obviously need. So we give them that in the summer when it gets hot and they need it. Uh, in the winter, we'll actually give them some of the Redmond mineral salt. We'll mix in some kelp to help boost their immune system. We'll occasionally mix in some DE uh, for warming purposes and also a product from Healthcare Feeds. Um, it's, it's called DUA. It basically helps them to metabolize uh, what they're eating uh, so that they get the most out of it if you will. And then we've also started using another product from a company here in Indiana called Organigrow over Newcastle. Um, they've got a feed booster that we've been putting on the hay, and it's a, it's got some molasses in it. It's also got some other things. Again, it's think of it as a, a, a good for digestion and uh, for making the most out of the feedstuffs that the cows are eating. And we, we put that on in the winter, and I, I will tell you, I think that stuff really does work. I think it really helps. The cows ate less hay, and they tend to perform better. They tend It seems like they're just getting more mileage out of the hay, and it goes further, and they look better when we use that versus when we don't use it. So that's, that's what we're doing on that front. On a shade structure, I haven't built one of those either, Jacob. Uh, it's something I would like to build, and frankly, if you get this all figured out, I think you should come down here and help me build one. Uh, I actually use a lot of trees for shade. We've got um, rows of trees, east-west tree lines, uh, so, and some south tree lines as well that we try and make use of when it gets really hot. If it's below 85, frankly, I don't worry a whole lot about shade. If it's below 80, it never even enters my mind. If it's between 80 and 85 and humid, I'm thinking about it. I might give them some shade if it's, you know, not too much difficulty. Uh, if it's 85 to 90, I'm definitely thinking about it, probably working on getting them some shade. Anything over 90, they're getting shade. And that might mean they have to walk back a couple of, of days of grazing. Yes, they may nibble along the way and do a little bit of damage to some immature plants that are trying to come back. But black cows in the hot, humid uh, weather that we have here in Indiana, particularly this year. Uh, we've, we've had, I think, we're pushing a record number of days over 90. Um, they've got to have shade. Uh, so that's those are kind of my rules of thumb with, with you know, temperatures versus do they get shade or not. Um, I think you're on the right track using a running gear. I know some other people that have done that. I, I think they all look different. Nothing ever looks the same as anyone else's. Um, 
I know one guy, now he just had sheep, not for cattle, but he actually just took some old running gear, uh, built it up a little bit so he could kind of sort of walk under it. And then he took some fiberglass panels and just had those hang out over the sides. And that worked really well for his sheep. They could actually get under the wagon itself. They could get under these, these outboard uh, overhangs, if you will. And that worked really well. That wouldn't work for cows. Um, I think if you're going to put those water totes up there, I put one on the front, one on the back, just so your weight distribution's even. I think you could probably have some kind of a, a drop-down mineral feeder on each side. Maybe one's higher for the cows and one's lower for the sheep. I think that's even something you could you could put on a hinged arm uh, that you could swing up and actually sit on top of the the you know the wagon um, uh, boards that are on on top of the frame. Uh, you know, if you want to get the if they don't need it or if you're not using it or whatever, you're moving it. Um, I, I think that that can be pretty nifty. I think as far as the shade structure itself, I think shade cloths can make a whole lot of sense. They're a whole lot lighter. I, again, I'd make those so they can like fold out uh, or be folded up so that when you have a strong wind come along, you don't have something that's basically like a sailboat that's going to catch a ton of wind, a ton of air, and, um, you know, maybe tip over on you, get destroyed, damaged, hurt an animal, hurt a person, uh, damage fence, whatever. So, um, you know, so, something that, that is, is, is somehow movable if possible, at least when I envision trying to build one of these for myself at some point, that's kind of what I've got in the back of my head. It's kind of a tall order, uh, building, uh, you know, something where you can retract the shade, if you will, um, almost like an awning. Maybe it rolls up, maybe it folds and bends or, or whatever. Um, but that's, again, that's kind of what I've got in the, the back of my head. But I think you're on the right track, particularly if you don't have access to a lot of trees. They really, they need something. They really do. So if it's just a sheep, I, I think you do what my buddy did. I mean, that's that's pretty simple. That's pretty low bar, but the cows, they got to have something taller, obviously. So, um, you know, uh you're pretty smart if you can you can uh, you know get everything on on one wagon. Now I will say with your water, and and I I have this conversation a lot. I've had this conversation twice this week. If you got to put it into a tote and lug the water around, so be it. Garden hose at the farm store is not that much money. I don't know how close you have a piped connection. But having a guaranteed pressurized source of clean, fresh water for your animals is absolutely critical, particularly in hot weather. Uh, if you've got to go buy a thousand feet of garden hose versus using those two IBC totes and then having to lug that thing all the way back up to that, that hydrant or piped connection to fill them up and then dragging it back out there, dude, just go buy garden hose. Like it, 25 bucks for a hundred feet. You know, a thousand feet is two hundred and fifty dollars. About the third or fourth time you drag this wagon a thousand feet each direction, um, you know, which is what is that? You know, forty uh, percent of a mile, right? Uh, you're you're probably better off just to buy some hose and then at the end of the year reel it up and uh, store it in the barn. But that's that's what we do. We'll just unroll some some hose and every hundred feet or two hundred feet we'll put a splitter valve in there. And then we've got a 30-gallon tank with a, 
$15 aluminum dare float valve and a 15-foot hose that we can easily pick up, throw it in the back of the RTV, move it to the next location, hook it up, and bada-boom, bada-bing, water's good to go. So that's my two cents there. If it's if it's not too far, just get some hose. Uh, if you need to use the totes, you need to use the totes. But anyway, those are my answers to your questions, Jacob. If you get that figured out, send me some photographs. Love to see it. So uh, thanks for sending in the question. Uh, if the rest of you are interested in this stuff, check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast, over 100 episodes out there. Uh, we've got a lot of interesting stuff coming down the pipe with our online course this fall. Um, more to follow on that. So check out the podcast when it comes back. We're currently taking a little break as we're working on filming some additional projects for online course content this summer. But uh, keep in touch. Keep sending the questions in, guys. I appreciate it. As always, everyone, have a nice weekend and take care. So I actually kind of have a design in my head that I think would work for things like pigs, though they can pretty much break anything if they want to, uh, probably goats, uh, certainly poultry, but I just don't think would be big enough for cattle. Um, and ironically, it uses cattle panels. So uh, many of you have seen my aviary uh, in different videos. I have an aviary built with 16-foot cattle panels, and a, uh, a nine-foot-high uh, back wall, and it's kind of done like lean-to style, where the back wall is straight vertical, and then the the cattle panels come up and arch over, and that makes it really high and, and nice and open in there. Well, you wouldn't need that for, uh, you know, I was going to do this for the ducks, for instance, uh, for when there are certain areas that they just don't really have as much shade as they would like, and ducks love shade. Um, basically, I would build a frame on wheels, and just throw a couple cattle panels on it. Uh, and about an 8-foot uh, width would give you a, a pretty high-walled um, arch that a person can comfortably get in if you wanted to put food and water in there. And honestly, putting their water inside there is a great idea because one of the issues we deal with, uh, even with the little chickens in the aviary, if we forget to make sure that the bucket is in the area that's shaded in there, uh, by the end of the day, that water right now is like scalding hot, like they don't even want to drink it. So by keeping their waters in, in there, like that would be a, a good thing to do too if you're moving waters with your animals every day, if you don't have like stationary stock tanks or something like that. Um, you can also go at about a width of 10 feet, and if you go in there, you'll have to stoop, but you will be able to, uh, to get in and access, and you'll give more space and then you can go to a place like Farm Tech or Greenhouse Mega Store, which are basically the same company, by the way. And you can buy custom cut shade cloth for whatever dimension that you want. And it, in my opinion, it would be a good idea if you had like a 16 foot um, area to cover that you maybe do something along the lines of, let's say, a 14 or even a 12 foot. Uh, shade cloth, leaving the bottoms open because the sun is never low enough to really beat in on that angle anyway. And that allows, because even with shade cloth being something that's permeable, it can block wind. So you'll allow more wind to flow through side to side. And of course, end to end, in something like this, you leave the ends wide open. And I think this could be built quite easily and adapted to just about anything that you wanted to do. If you were mainly doing poultry, they don't need anywhere near as much width, so you could come in even to, let's say, a six-foot width and have a higher arch uh, even than, than with an eight-foot width, 
and that might allow you to put this shade into areas and fit it through places that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, it would be really easy to move. It would move just like most chicken tractors do. In fact, it would be easier because it would be lighter, and there's no birds to worry about crushing that are inside it. So that's my idea, but it, it wouldn't work for cattle. Um, and doing anything that's not portable kind of has, you know, when you're doing rotational grazing, grazing has its problems. But another way that would make maybe it not to be needed as portable, and maybe with two of them you get more time to move them, If you design your paddocks so you can create sort of a wagon wheel profile, and let's say four paddocks uh, have a central point, and that shade can sit in that one spot, uh, and maybe laneway access or something like that, uh, then the animals can go there whenever they want to for shade. And then it, maybe it's every fourth day that you actually have to worry about a different shade location. And if you had two shade locations... Well, you could have the other one already there, and then you've got four days to get that one moved, and it might make it a little more logistically uh, possible. Then again, you might want to do it more of a one-shade to two-paddock type arrangement and give yourself a couple days in between or even maybe have three of them and give yourself three days in between to get them moved because the problem is, obviously, during times of the year like now, they're going to spend most of their time under that shade. So you're going to really concentrate their manure and their activity, and you may not want to do that over a four-day period. So those are just some thoughts that I have uh, thought about and uh, some different things you might be able to do. Uh, next up, I have a question on DE water filtration for Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Chad, who writes, Can diatomaceous earth be used to purify water? If I can't use my Berkey or other water filters, could diatomaceous earth be added to a water bottle to kill bacteria and viruses? I understand it wouldn't take out chemicals or particulates, but I think it would kill off the bed bugs. Thanks, Chad in San Francisco. By the way, I love your book. Oh, thanks, Chad. We love our book, too. Diatomaceous earth, Chad, is a powder. And for people who don't know, it's made of almost pure silica manufactured from the fossilized skeletons of diatoms, one-celled algae. Diatomaceous earth filtration is indeed a thing, and it is a process that uses the skeletal remains of these guys as a filter media. Commercially, this is known as pre-coat filtration and relies upon a layer of diatomaceous earth placed on a filter element, also known as a septum. Diatomaceous earth filters are simple to operate and effective in removing a lot of things, cysts, algae, even asbestos from water. They've been employed in many food and beverage applications for more than 70 years. They were a main method to filter drinking water during World War II. It remains an EPA-approved technology for filtering drinkable water. Chad, now you're right about diatomaceous earth also being effective against bed bugs, although I hope you don't have any in your drinking water. We'll talk about that some other time. But you're asking how to make diatomaceous earth in a water bottle as a homemade filter. By itself, I think the diatomaceous earth filters would be most suitable to treat water with low bacterial count and low level of cloudiness, also known as turbidity. I think it would be more effective with several layers of different substances. Remember, what are you trying to do? You're trying to mimic the natural filtration of water by different ground layers. Now, here's a way to achieve that goal. Choose a two-liter clear plastic bottle or other container for the filter. Cut out the bottom of the bottle. 
completely using a sharp knife or scissors. The water goes in here. Then drill a small hole in the cap. The water goes out here. Place a coffee filter, cotton, or other porous barrier on the inside of the bottleneck. This is going to be the last segment of your water filter and also will hold all the particles from the filter layers. Put a few spoons of diatomaceous earth. This will be the first layer above the filter medium. Place another layer. Uh, you can place another filter if you want, but then place a layer of activated charcoal on the top of the diatomaceous earth layer. That's going to be the second layer. Then pour fine grain sand on the charcoal layer, at least two inches worth, and then pour a layer of large grain sand over the layer of fine grain sand. So you're pouring sand in different thicknesses on top of the charcoal, and that's on top of the diatomaceous earth. I want you then to pour a layer of fine gravel over the layer of sand. Finally, pour a layer of large gravel on top of the fine gravel. Make sure to pack at least two inches for each of these layers that I'm giving you to fill out the whole filter. Insert a straw cap into the hole of the bottle cap that you made in the beginning. Position the filter over a container, and the water you pour into the upside-down bottle will slowly make its way through all the layers, simulating the way water is filtered naturally. You might say that's a pretty good water filter even without the diatomaceous earth, and you'd be right. But an extra high-quality layer sounds like a good idea to me. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our award-winning third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. The Member Support Brigade gets a discount on anything in our store, and it's eligible for your health savings accounts. Thanks again. All right, next up, let's say you've decided that you want some help with your homestead, your gardening, uh, permaculture design, anything like that. And you decide you're going to hire our good buddy Nick Ferguson to come out, take a look at your property, and give you some ideas, give you some design, uh, give you some consultation, or any of the good consultants that are out there. I, I always recommend Nick because he's part of our team right here, and uh, he's a great guy. I know he'll do a good guy, a good job for you. But you know he can't be everywhere all the time. And there's some other great consultants out there. Uh, so I think this advice would apply to any of them because. When you pay for consultation, it will more than pay for itself, but you always want to get the best bang for your buck. And I can tell you, it's not just in permaculture. It's in consulting in general. I, I used to do a lot of business consulting for, for business processes, sales processes, and marketing processes. And, and part of what made me miserable about it is the clients. They always paid their bills, but then they generally didn't follow the consultation very well. And um, as a consultant, you want clients that actually are able to do well with your consulting. That's what builds your reputation. And uh, you don't want them to just like what you have to say. You want them to be able to implement it. And a big part of that is, this is going to sound weird, but it's a good idea to think, I want to be a good client. Okay? And, and the reason it's a good idea to think that way is because as, a, as, as your uh, consultant, I want you to be a good client because that's how I'm going to be able to help you get the most out of what I do for you. So there's certain things you can do to be prepared for consultation. And what I found, and I don't know how it really works with permaculture consulting because I've never really done any, but with business consultation, when you go in, basically the customer has just said, we know we're not doing the best we could be, um, help. And then you got a whole bunch of guys sitting around a table in suits staring at you. 
And again, I'm sure with permaculture consulting, you got you know, one or two or three people that are standing out in the middle of a field. But I bet a lot of it's kind of the same. Like, no real thought has gone in, no data collection, no analysis, no. So the more you do to help a consultant help you, the more they'll be able to help you. And the more open you are to, to consultation, and the more clear you are about what you want. So with that in mind, let's hear what Nick Ferguson has to say about this when it comes to homesteading, permaculture consultation, that type of thing. Nick, take it away. Hey there, everyone. Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com with a quick answer for one of the listeners. And Johnny's email reads, Nick, what can a client do to prepare for your consult? What images information is most helpful to you prior to or during con- the consult. I need your services badly, but I'm in Southwest Michigan, a little out of your area. I need to do a Skype consult, but want to get to want to be totally prepared to maximize my dollars and our short time together. Maybe it would be helpful if you gave a specific idea of what you need ahead of time to get the most out of the call. Many thanks, Johnny. All right, that's a great question. And the short answer is most everything you need to know is on my website under the consulting tab. The address for that is www.homegrownliberty.com forward slash consulting. Give the whole page a good read. Follow the links to get the consulting questionnaire and anything else I have up there. Most all of the information I need is going to be listed there. It's a rare exception when I run across a client that throws me for a loop with their situation and needs. Almost everyone wants needs the same set of solutions. To put it in kind of a painting metaphor, most everyone wants a landscape painted with the same types of focal points, the same uh, elements. The only differences are in how large those individual elements are portrayed and what colors they want to see. Like, for instance, one client might hate or be allergic to strawberries, but it's a very rare client who doesn't want fruit designed into their property layout. The situations change. Water flow, light, temperature, climate always changes. But, man, it it seems like it's it's really quick and easy to come to a pretty good solution for a client. So it's normally not a big deal to get to those specifics pretty quick and and come up with a good solution. So just think about those particulars, write down your desires, also, you know, make a list of the limiting factors. So let's make up a situation. Uh, this made-up client is a doctor who works 60 to 90 hours a week and needs plenty of time to recharge and rest. Well, my job is going to be helping that client troubleshoot their current operation and help them make positive changes that will help them accomplish their goals. So if they're wanting to grow a lot of their own meat, well, if they're trying to raise animals that require a lot of time and energy every week, that's probably going to be something that I'm going to encourage them to move away from and move towards something that is going to be less time involvement. It might mean that I suggest getting rid of a couple of their livestock categories and reducing workload. It might mean focusing on automation, or it might mean encouraging the client to start with a particular small project and then get that done before starting another. A lot of the time, the distance consults are, honestly, they're more of a Bot treatment solution. 
A client might set up a call to troubleshoot something like a pond being all slimy with algae and they want to fix it, but they just don't know how to start. They don't know what questions to ask or where to go to get help. And that's where I'll ask a bunch of questions. We narrow down likely causes. I'll prescribe certain steps that can be taken to start correcting the problems, maybe help the client find local um, professionals to help them. Just know the lingo and the jargon and know the questions to ask to find the solutions, and hopefully we get the issue knocked out. It's a lot like fixing a truck that's acting up. You know, you start looking at the parts, you check functionality, you kind of troubleshoot, you narrow down likely sources of the problem and enact a repair. It's That's honestly what it is. It's just troubleshooting. So if you have a specific problem that needs help or you just need direction or you feel like you're doing nothing but putting out fires and this whole mess of a homestead is more trouble than it's worth and you want to throw in the towel, well, a distance consult is probably a great fit. If you need a whole site design and plan and you're dealing with some serious water issues on your property, well, you know, I can only do so much without stepping foot on the property. So a whole system design from a distance you know, just looking at a computer monitor and pictures and video, it's going to be completely my best guess estimate. But, you know, we've done side overviews with strategies for runoff prevention and repair, flood water mitigation, house or barn placement, etc. It's just normally if that's more of your need, then distance consult is probably going to be less helpful to you. So to recap... Know what your question is, try and narrow it down to one sentence or two, write it down, write down the problems that you're facing that you need help fixing, turn the list into bullet points, make another bullet point list of your limitations, figure out what your realistic annual budget is for improvements. Having things like that figure it out ahead of time will really help speed things along. And like I have listed in the consulting tab, you know, taking a video tour of your property and pointing out the problems and issues you're dealing with will help out tremendously. I hope that helps you out, man. You can find out a ton about my consulting at the website, homegrownliberty.com forward slash consulting. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to just send me an email. I'll do my best to get back to you ASAP. And the email address for that is nick at homegrownliberty.com. That's N-I-C-K at sign homegrownliberty.com. That about wraps it up. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. Great stuff from Nick. I mean, echoing what I said in the intro, and, and this is a lot of times I listen to the expert's response before I do the show. Nick is one of the people that I never really worry about. I, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Some of the guys I like, I got to listen to this for, I got to make sure they didn't go 20 to 7 minutes and then try to pass that off as a council segment. Uh, or maybe we've had like one person that tends to rant a little bit and lose control and has to be told, no, we're not going to be doing that. Or another big giant guy that sometimes throws in multiple F-bombs in a place they really don't need to be. So that gets kicked back or edited out. So like there's, but with Nick, I just like, okay, his answer is going to be gold. So I actually listened to that one, you know, after I did the intro and, and the, the, the thing you come back to is being willing to 
give as much information, gather as much information, and be willing to accept the fact that some of what you want maybe really isn't what you need. And I think the biggest thing you need to do with any consultant, it doesn't matter if it's permaculture, business, marketing, honesty. Honesty. If you really want something, but you really don't like it, be honest about that. The consultant is then going to be able to figure out why you don't like it. You're putting too much work into it. Uh, it's not giving you enough of a return, what have you. And either make a recommendation that you stop doing it, or maybe you're doing it wrong. You know, Nick and I had an instance with the, the, the Permethos Farm in West Virginia. They were spending tons of time turning compost. We had a tractor with a front-end loader. Use the tractor to turn it. Can't get the tractor with the compost. Stop putting the compost down at the bottom of the hill. Put it at the top of the hill. You only have to move it back up anyway. So like something like that is an example of you even have the tool that was necessary to make the job easy and to take something that was taking hours and turn it into minutes. But you didn't see it. And sometimes it's really easy to spot stuff like that. But one of the hardest things to do is consult for somebody that insists they really want something and doesn't tell you that they actually hate it because they can't be honest with themselves because they're attached to the idea. Honesty with your consultant, brutal honesty. I really don't like doing this, but I feel I have to because. That is that is gold to a consultant because that says, okay, well, I'll, either I have to figure out how to make this where you don't hate it or figure out how to make it where you don't have to. And, and that's what good consultants do. They save you time, they save you money, they save you frustration, and they save you doing things you really don't want to do. Sometimes you have to. You know, if you get a fitness consultant, they might tell you you have to exercise. You might tell them you don't want to, and you're going to have to exercise. But even then, they can find a way to make that exercise more enjoyable to you based on who you are and your personality type. Next up, I have a really complicated situation. Um, it's really directed at the homeschool uh, concept. But it's not the only reason somebody would want to do this. It's the transition of having a two-parent working household, double income, and transitioning to a single-parent household. There's a lot of reasons people would want to do this. Some, even if they don't mind uh, using government schools, what about the time from the you know that child is born till they're about five years old and start going into kindergarten? Uh, the expense sometimes, a spouse looks at it, it's almost as much as they're earning. Uh, if you have to do daycare or you know, if you don't have in-laws to rely on like our, our kids do here. So there's a lot of reasons you might want to make this transition, uh, not just for homeschool. Maybe one person just really hates what they do and they want to give something that's more freelance a shot and there's not going to be a lot of income for a while. How do you make that transition? Mike and Sue, what are your thoughts? This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com. Designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel. Hey Jack. Hey TSP community. Today's question comes from Paul. And Paul writes, How can we afford to lose my wife's income to make time for her to homeschool our children? Details. We have a dual income household. I work full time and my wife works part time from about 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. We have a daughter in second grade, a daughter that will be starting kindergarten, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. We are both interested in homeschooling, but our biggest concern is that we cannot afford to lose my wife's income. I was homeschooled through middle school and high school, but my father made a six-figure income. In our current economy, it seems that more and more households can only survive off of two incomes, which eliminates homeschooling as an option for a lot of people. 
What advice or insight can you give us on either losing part of our income or making time for homeschooling while keeping keeping a part-time job? Thanks for all you do. Okay. So, Paul, you're going to live like you want those kids you decided to have. And you're going to have to buy into the philosophy that they come first. Because if you don't buy the philosophy, what happens? Well, you can't buy into the practical skills. So the first thing is finding your tribe. Who are you going to hang out with? You're going to hang out with other homeschoolers that are probably, hopefully, kind of in your income range because they're the people that are going to help you find those practical skills of how do they make it work. Yes, and and we've done that. We've got friends that we've had for 18, 20 years or so that have been homeschooling that we've, you know, spending our lives living with them, basically growing up together. So one of the things, the first thing I would talk about is is a willingness to sacrifice. Are you willing to sacrifice for your children? I'll give you an example. I worked with a uh, young lady. This was years ago, and she had just had her second child, and she came back to work. Crying. She, she was crying because... She had to go back to work, and she'd love to have stayed home with her two children. Now, her husband made significantly more money than I made, and and I was telling her, well, you can stay home. Your husband makes more than I do. You can make it work. And about a week and a half after we had that conversation, she showed up in a brand-new uh, excursion. excursion. Yeah. Brand-new excursion. And I was like, whoa. And she was explaining to me how there's no way that she could drive a car that was more than three years old, which is really kind of funny because at that point in time, I would never buy a car that was less than three years old. (laughs) So when you're talking about what are you willing to give up? So for me, a lot of that was my days off were days that I worked on car repairs or home repairs. Yeah, and Michael didn't learn how to do those things from his dad. He learned how to do them from a neighbor, asking friends to help. I mean, before YouTube, you had to go, you know, knock on doors and figure out how to do that for yourself. It was much harder than it is today to learn those skills. Getting a book, it's much easier now to look on YouTube, absolutely. So we took a lot of vacations that were camping, vacations, road trips to visit family, and we come from big families, so nobody minded that we showed up with our four children and stayed at their house for a week, at least as far as we know, nobody minded. (laughs) And it was fun, and it was what our children were used to. We didn't get to go to Disneyland and anything like that. We just had fun being together, and... One of the great things about camping is it instills survival skills, but when you get out there and your kids are like trying to use their phone or whatever, and it doesn't work, and it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, the other thing also is a lot of those sacrifices, especially camping, turned into exceptional times. Yes. So there were times when we would camp for, say, 10 days in a row. Now, one of the things about camping for 10 days in a row is when you're driving back home in the car, everybody smells like yes. you've been camping for 10 days in a row. <laughs> Smoke. You know, but one of the things, when we literally, when you get home, the kids' uh, appreciation of their nice bed and a shower and what we actually lived in and how we lived, their appreciation of that was much greater. Yes. And there were times where we, we were out in Big Bend and the low at night would be 29. We had two days in a row where the low was 29 and the high was 92. Those are quite exceptional days. But when you're on a camping trip for 10 days, there's lots of memories that are built. And so one of the things you have to do in order for this to work is to stop comparing yourself to others. And as a homeschool mom, hanging out with homeschool moms that don't have very much money, it was always really easy because, what are you doing? I'm going camping with you. Yes. So the difficulty, especially if you're a working dad, is the comparing yourself to others. People are going on vacation, or the husband and wife are jet-setting off to Vegas, or they're going on a cruise, or they're doing things. And that's one of the things that I had to learn, was to let go of comparing myself to what others were doing. 
Um, so that was a skill that I had to learn over time to think, okay, what am I investing in? Right? I'm not investing in cruises. I'm not investing in Vegas trips. I'm not investing in going to Disney World. I'm investing in my kids and in, my, in their future. So the next thing, number two, would be the value of what you're teaching. What do you want your kids to know when they leave your house? And this, as we've watched, like our oldest is 30, and we've watched people whose kids are 30 and older that we've known over time, the parents that invested in their kids, the values their kids have, are much more closely reflecting of what the parents' values are. Yes, we have some friends who have three adult children, and their children don't have their values, and they don't understand why. Well, they were both both professionals, both really career-minded, and the kids went through public school. They went through public grammar school. A really good government school. Yeah, government high school, and then they went on to real liberal universities. And they look at their kids and they say, we don't understand. We didn't raise them that way. How did they end up with these values? And it's like, well, you did raise them that way. You gave them to the government for 13 years and then college. So there you go. So what we like to do is thinking about what we're teaching our kids is self-reliance, freedom, and the love of learning. Right. So number three. This is where the rubber meets the road. You've got to buy the philosophy before you can get into the practical skills. So the practical skills are we didn't go out to eat, and I made almost everything we ate from scratch because that's cheaper. And we ate great. Okay, again, guarantee you yes, the food well, was good. So a lot of our kids, they don't go out to eat. Or when they go to a restaurant, they won't go out and order a steak. And we didn't have steak all the time. But I've got to pat myself on the back. I know how to cook a great steak. And so my kids, they don't want to buy a steak because it doesn't come out as well as the ones that I make. But the things that we did, the first thing we did, we had two vehicles. We sold one vehicle. So we, we were a one-car family for a long, long time. Yeah, so, you know, part of it is goes back to, like, who are you going to marry? We talk a lot to married couples and families that already have children. But if you don't have a spouse... And you want this kind of lifestyle where the wife stays home or you're a girl and you want to stay home kind of thing. Then that was part of our early conversation when we first met. Our moms both stayed home. They were very nurturing mothers, crafty, made food, grew food at our homes. And um, it was really lovely. We had wonderful childhoods. And so we knew when we met that we wanted that for our children. And it wasn't easy because when I got pregnant and quit working... We cut our income in half. My job had the insurance. Which was free because you worked yeah. for an insurance company. It was fantastic in 1987. So, so we, cut up, we cut our pay in half, and we had to take on the expense of buying, paying for insurance through my company. So it was a giant sacrifice. Yeah. We, we downsized where we lived. We moved into a much smaller, older house that we were renting. And we were renovating that we, first place while they, we were renting it. Yes, they gave us a discount on the rent so as we were working on it. So we were renovating a house for the owner while we were living on the first floor, and we got a discounted rent because we were doing the work. The other thing is food. Uh, so producing your own food, growing a garden. If you can homestead and have animals, that's great. But just start by growing a garden. Um, and then you have people around you that grow food. And if they offer you food, you say, thank you. Thank you. We will be glad to eat that free food that you grew. And if you say thank you, guess what? They come back and bring you more. They do. Oh, they keep knocking at your door. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic. Yeah. So then buying in bulk, and I don't mean Costco, because Costco includes a lot of things that you don't really need that is very tempting. So if you are going to Costco, 
go with cash. But I'm talking bulk buying, like going to the produce terminal, splitting a huge box of oranges or onions or whatever with your friends, and learning how to process that bulk food, and you'll save a significant amount of money. Yes, there is a time of the year when we're doing a lot of bulk food buying, and Saturday mornings is food processing day. Yeah, so I'll go Friday, pick up a bunch of food. Friday we'll start processing it. The kids help through Saturday. We do the same with like free venison. Do you, do you have free venison? Yes, we'll take free venison, yep. free pork, whatever. Say yes. So we shop at Walmart. We do a lot of online shopping at Walmart. 12 packages of pasta online at Walmart in a box is cheaper than a package. And since we're cutting out carbs. We're going to be crafting with a lot of pasta <laughs> that we have. Yeah. And, and there's also, there's a thing called TSP. And so if you're an MSB member, you get a discount. We use that discount. It's great. And we buy on T-SPAS. So we go online through Amazon, through T-SPAS, to do our online shopping. Yeah, we buy a lot of spices, bulk spices, one to five pounds. And we, Michael built the pantry just for that so that they all fit in there. And we have it's so cheap that my kids get a jar that says fennel. And when it's empty, they bring it back and refill their jars, their little half Half pints. Well, it depends on what it is. Some of the other ones, the pepper and stuff, is in bigger yeah. jars. But they get to come, come home and refill them. And, then and we the next- make, you know, we make all our own spices. We yes. do our own taco seasoning, Italian seasoning, Montreal, Montreal steak seasoning, seasoning, all yes. of that. We make our We own. mix it ourselves. Yeah. Next would be revenue. So you've got a job. It's paying you decent or it's paying you well. And what do you do? For a long time, I worked two jobs. So there was a while there where I worked seven days a week. I would work my regular job, and after my regular job, I worked at a retail uh, store. And so I would get out of my regular job, drive to the retail store and work there, and work there on Saturdays and Sundays. For me, that wasn't such a big deal. My dad worked seven days a week his whole career. Yeah. We have this idea that I can't, I can only work Monday through Friday, nine to five. So I waited tables at different points in life when we really wanted something, um, um, I'm a pretty good waitress. And so we, I waited tables to make a little bit extra money until we had what we wanted, and then I would quit. And I babysitting, man, babysitting is a great income. $2 an hour, you think that's not very much, but you're already at home with your kids. Somebody drops their kid off. You watch them for $25 a day, $30 a day, whatever. It adds up. There's no tax. It's a fabulous way to take that extra money and invest it in your homeschooling supplies for the future. And if you teach at a homeschool, you can teach at a homeschool co-op. A lot of times you don't have to pay for the co-op or they'll even pay you yeah. to teach. So if you're a math and science teacher and you can teach at a co-op, you can make quite a bit of money doing that. So what are we going to leave our kids? Well, you know, I'd like to leave them a 401k balance. Not maybe. Sure, maybe. That could disappear. Um, I'd like to leave them this house that they could sell. Yeah, but we don't know what the value of that will be. Not in the future. Uh, I have an insurance policy. Which is fantastic. But I don't know that I want to leave that to him because that would mean that I'd have to be gone. You'd have to die. Yeah. Yes, to get that one. Yes. Or what really what, what we really want to leave our kids are our values. We want to leave them memories, lots of memories, and skills. And so those are the things that we want to leave. And the way that we do that is we've sacrificed a lot of things. For time. For, for time. So a lot of objects. Literally, a lot of things that we don't have. You know, we don't use cable television. There's lots of things that we use to save money. But, boy, we spent lots of time with our children, building lots of memories, helping them build lots of skills, yeah, so the, and instilling our values with them. Yeah, so the myth of quality time 
doesn't happen. Quality time happens within this quantity of time where this magical moment occurs because as you walk along the way with your kids, something really fabulous happens. And you can't plan that. You can't put it on the calendar. You've got to invest the time to make that happen. For those that just happen, yes. Yeah. So this has been Michael and Sue LaPreeze with HaloBySue.com, reminding you that your choices strongly influence your children's choices. Back to you, Jack. That's kind of like a micro-seminar on uh, household management for best financial uses in the household, really. Those are good practices uh, in many ways, even if you're going to have two incomes. A couple things I would point out here is that the, the, the woman in this equation that was asking the question in the first place is only working four hours a day. That's 11 to four or five hours a day, something like that, uh, right now. So it's a part-time job, uh, 20 to 25 hours a week. Uh, unless it's really, really high-paid work, I mean, it's it's not a tremendous amount of money. And I, I think we all have more time than we think we do. And it may be that if you spend the day at home with the kids uh, teaching them, that when Dad comes home, he spends time, you know, being with them. And maybe you have to work some other time. Uh Something like doing Uber on Saturdays and Sundays might be enough to replace that income that you would lose. I mean, the, the, the good thing here is you're not in a full-time job that's covering benefits and stuff, so you're only replacing raw income. Uh, and if you do that at, at about 7% better, uh, so 7% more, you're at break-even. Uh, and, and, in fact, you'll probably be ahead because you'll probably be able to, if you're doing Uber or something like that, deduct enough in, that you won't pay any tax on the money at all. Uh, so that would be one way to look at it. Can you can you do work at a different time? The next one will be can you do work from home? Uh, the, even if it's not enough income to offset, it it, it, it partially offsets. Uh, is your skill set such that you could take on some sort of remote work? Um, understanding that homeschooling and working from home are not valid child care uh, uh, systems. Uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna work from home, you have to have the ability to actually do work, uh, not constantly be dealing with kids' needs. So your kids need to be old enough that they can be kind of set in motion. And you know, for the next two hours, you're working on your projects, and mom or dad, whoever's staying home, is working on their work. Uh, and, and you know, some flexibility that helps. So usually, got like customer service type stuff. Where there's hours that you have to be working is not the best. It's better to have project-based, production-based work, where you you know do something that, that as long as you're turning that in every week, whoever you're reporting to is like great. I don't care. I'm good. Uh, so that's another option. Lastly, a lot of people fancy doing this. Well, we can make it work. We can make it work. I have a brilliant idea. Do it for fake for 30 days minimum. You set a drop-dead date, uh, on, on, say if it was this month, August 1st, we're going to pretend mom doesn't have a job anymore, dad doesn't have a job anymore, and he's going to keep going to work, or she's going to keep going to work, and that money's going to come in, and that money's going to go in a savings account. And we are going to scrape and scramble and do everything we can. And if there's any cost associated with mom or dad going to work that would not exist if they didn't, in other words, gas to get to work and things like that, anything, like, we're going to pay that. 
But everything else, we're going to pretend that that, that that money doesn't even exist and live with it for 30 to 60 days to see if you can. And that'll tell you if you can and if the time is right. Sometimes you can, but the time's not right. Um, I've talked to people, you know, we're $80,000 in debt, but we're homeschooling. Maybe you shouldn't be. You know, maybe, I mean, maybe you need to for for all the reasons Mike and Sue gave. Maybe the, the options at the school that you would send your kids to uh, are so bad that you feel that you need to. But maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should do what I just said for a year or two and completely get out of debt and understand that like when we make decisions like going $80,000 into consumer debt, um, that, that decision has a consequence. And that, that is always not being able to do everything you want. That's what that always is. Now, what you want changes, but the fact that since you're 80 grand in debt, you can't just do what you would do if you weren't, that doesn't change. That's the same across the board. So it, it's kind of like Nicole and I were talking about on Wednesday with, with like when to go pull the trigger and go full-time into a side business and leave your job. It's like having kids. There's never a perfect time. There's never really a right time. But there are absolute obvious wrong times to do something. Sometimes the situation is, well, uh, you need to change your, your where you live first. You have to make adjustments first. And then even when you do that, if it's in any way possible, keep the second income for two or three months even. Stockpile the crap out of that money. Come to peace with the new arrangement and the new budget. And then go ahead and do it. And if you figure out that that really won't work for your family, that it really creates financial strain you're not willing to deal with, then guess what? You have two to three months worth of one income in the bank. You still win. And you can go back. And then you what you'll probably find is even if you're not ready to do it yet, that that going back to living on half that income feels like like luxury. It's actually a good thing for any family to try. Take the smaller income of the two spouses, pretend it doesn't exist, pretend you lost your job. Pretend you lost your job. You don't have any money. It's just not there. You have to deal with it. It's amazing. Most people, when that happens, and it does, do manage to deal with it. So then, then put half the money back. And then all of a sudden you're saving half of one spouse's income every month. How fast do you build your financial future that way? Do that before you have kids. You'll be able to homeschool. I, it, I know it doesn't help you when you're 34 and you have kids that are seven. But I'm talking to more than just the people that are in that situation. We need to all be thinking about all the stages of our lives at every other stage. right? At least the future stages. Thinking about the past, the only good in thinking about the past is the lessons there so we don't repeat them in the future or we handle situations differently. Dwelling on them is a waste. Thinking about our future, that's where our time should really be spent. With that, let's take another one. This is on blogging from Speak of the Devil, Nicole Awesome Sauce. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here with a question from Mark. This, this is his question. I'm about to create a blog and was wondering if blogging is a dying form of content creation or does it still have lots of room for new bloggers? Is it at all possible or a good idea to start one completely on a mobile phone? Well, Mark, 
I am sorry to tell you that it is not like 2003 when you could start a blog, put up some pretty pictures, be consistent and totally own your whole sector in the blogging space. But blogging is also not dead. I don't think it's dying. It's just different. It's all content creation is different and it's changing every year, basically. I suppose the best way to think of this outside is, is to just move outside of the blogging space. And we're talking about content creation here. So you're asking me, is content creation dead? No, people want to consume content. It It is certainly changing and I would say it's not as easy to get things started now as it once was, but good content is good content. And if what you're writing about reaches and resonates with the people you want it to, and they're interested in your topic and they're interested in you and what you're focusing on, then you'll find that you can grow a following through just honest personal branding. In fact, Jack recently did an episode on just this topic. It was more related to how to establish your honest personal brand and why that's important. 2235, if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. If you have listened to it, now that you've asked me this question, go back and listen to this and think, how does this apply to my blog? I did put a link for you, Jack, in case you want to put that in the show notes to make it easier. I also think the the best I can tell you is this. It, it, it takes it again out of just blog specifically in launching anything. You really need to find your niche or hook and stay consistent. Commit to creating content on a schedule that's predictable. Find ways to build your audience, some of which might include, well, firstly, and most importantly, approach your interactions as a servant warrior, not with the sole intent of self-promotion. This is the thing I see most people do that's, it's wrong. It's like you come off like a schmarmy used shoe salesman, right? Used shoe leather salesman. Like there's a difference between good salesmanship and just being horrible. You know what I mean? I, I mean, and I think of it this way, like a lot of what I do revolves around having a servant warrior mentality. And that means I honestly do care about the people I interact with. I, in fact, yesterday, one of the people who I've never met in person who interacts with me on social networks, we've only known each other a little while, really, came through my podcast and she had a fire. It looked like a wildfire near her house had to get out with almost no warning. And I really did care if her house burned down or not, right? So, and because of that, I asked her how she was and we had a conversation and then it turned out, she said, you know, my bug out bag isn't what I guess it needs to be. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like what, wh- how is that changing? Think about that. Like now's the perfect time to update your whole plan because you just had this happen and luckily her house didn't burn down. Okay. Well, you're going to find yourself if you get into the content creation and developing your network, you're going to find yourself having conversations like this with lots of people, lots of people you're probably never going to meet in your whole life. But if you're really there to be of, of, of service to them, that resonates with them. And then, yes, they might support you in other ways, some of which are fine, financial, right? Uh, be interesting and entertaining to your audience. Actively reach out to the people, to, to people to find readers. I mean, a really good way to get your content out there is to run on other avenues or other venues. Uh, if you're a blogger, you might want to like, Start writing columns in local papers and then underneath, you know, Mark is 
a blogger at um I love my life.com, right? So you always have that in your, uh, in your byline, right? Whenever you do a guest thing or do guest blogs, blog posts on uh, other blogs that are bigger. I think Jack's written on Lou Rockwell a few times. Like that means that reaches a whole bunch of people. He links to his site in his byline. Boom. People find the survival podcast, right? So. You just, you want to look at it that way. So it's like you do have this one thing where you do want to promote yourself, but you're promoting yourself with the, the way I think it works best is you're promoting yourself with the intention of reaching the kind of people that would do well to be involved in the information that you're providing to them. And I mean, it's not all that different from how I approach, how you should approach an interview with Jack on his show, right? Like I was just on it the other day. So this is fresh in my mind. And I, I told him before we started, I'm like, I really want to write a tip sheet for people who interview with you to like how to have a good interview with Jack. And the first thing on that list for me, and I didn't tell him what it was, is approach your interview and your interview idea that you're going to pitch to him with the idea of what can I give the people listening to Jack's podcast that's useful to them, that's actionable for them out of the shoot. And it should have nothing to do. It may be on the same topic as something you do, but it shouldn't be like my objective is to sell my new book or my objective is to sell my new video or my product, right? Your objective to be successful on those interviews is to give people information. That's why they listen to his podcast and you want to make him look good and you want to give them something that's actionable And sure, at the end, he's going to ask you, like, what do you got? And you might have a Kickstarter. You might have a website they can go to. Some of those people may reach out to you and want to hire you for something or may want to buy your book. But if your whole interview with Jack is about selling your book, all you're talking about is something. It it, it gets boring, right? And that's the same with when you're doing a blog. If if you have a blog and you want to monetize it by selling, you know, your special brand of sparkling water... And all you do is talk about your awesome sparkling water and why sparkling water is important and why this one, you know what I mean? Like it just, you're not going to get the traction you want. I think the other thing that, that leads to success in content is knowing your primary objective in that servant warrior mentality before you go into anything and you can say, okay, does this get me there? And then making sure that you craft what you're doing around that. So that's sort of a tangent, but not really like those two things are related. Are you, are you making good content? Good content helps the people reading the content. And we've all seen like content bots that do well in Google searches. And you're like in there going, how do I make comfrey salve? And you type into Google how to make comfrey salve. And you come up with this like giant article full of fluffy words that tells you nothing. And then it gives you links and then you follow those links. And then eventually you can buy a book on how to make comfrey salve. And you're like, well, this is stupid. And then you finally just hop on Zello and ask Leos, right? That was just a little Zello joke for those of you in the TSP Zello network. No, you know, but it's, and those are often created by bots, articles like that. And they do get attention, but they're not helpful. And, and what I've found and what I see other people doing is as they craft their content and they craft it well and it's helpful and it's actionable, they start building the same people coming back and building the same people coming back is more important than reaching everybody in the world once, right? If you've got a thousand people who come to your blog every month, 
that's way better than 20,000 people who are different people every time because that retention is how you build the relationship and the relationship is how you eventually monetize. Now, your second question, your mobile phone question, why? Why would you do that? Ah! I like I think my heart rate increased when I read that about twice as fast as it was going before. WordPress does allow you to post content by email to your blog, which you could do with your phone, and you can technically log into their background uh, to their back end and post, but dude, you're going to need a computer. You're going to need to use a computer. I mean, okay, it's it's possible to do it without a computer, but I cannot imagine navigating the levels of frustration I would have trying to do a blog from a mobile phone. Uh, there's a lot of things going on there, like the fat thumb factor of typing words, the voice to text not working right. Good blogs have great graphics. So editing photos on a phone is a pain in the rear. Same with video. It's possible you can do some basic things. I've done it. I still do it. I probably do it a couple times a week. But it's so much faster from a computer. And when you get into something like a new project, like a blog, if you're wasting your time with a tiny screen that doesn't quite do everything you want, it just it becomes a frustration. And then it's hard to be motivated to do it. Uh, I mean, my other question that comes up if you're using only a phone is, do you have a proper blog built or are you using a third party blogging part platform? If you're going to be serious about this, you're going to have your own blog. It's going to be, you know, yourdomainname.com going to your blog, right? So while it is possible, yes, I think it's a terrible idea. And I doubt you will want to keep blogging if you only do it for your, from your phone. And if budget's an issue, you can totally do, you can do whatever you do on your phone, right? You can write that, your blog posts. You can send it to your email. You can head to your local library or a friend's house, use their computer to finish the job so your posts look good. And then, of course, you can like comment back and forth and all that stuff on your phone. That's pretty easy. It's just that I have never found posting to websites from even tablets. It's kind of clunky. So, Mark, no, blogging's not dead. Yes, you'll need to make good content, be consistent, put the time and effort into promoting your blog from the point of view of how is my blog making the world better or making those people who I'm trying to reach making their world better. And if you do that, you'll find that you have something that not just your closest friends and parents read. I do hope you have fun starting on your blogging journey. Shoot me a link when you get it up. I'd love to see what you put together. And do me a favor. Don't do something silly like launch it through Wix or Blogger, or any of those other free sites. Because after you become successful, and you have several hundred, or several thousand, or several hundred thousand posts with graphics, and it's looking good, and all those systems in place, and then you realize that you need to launch your website, it's going to be an expensive, time-consuming pain in the butt to move it to something more reasonable like WordPress. So do yourself a favor, set it up right from the beginning, and I can help you with that. There are a whole bunch of people in the TSP network who can help you with that. Lots of developers out there. I hope this helps you get going. And TSP, you all know how to find me over at livingfreeintennessee.com. Make it a great week. Or rather, make it a great weekend. Woo, woo. So I, I just wanted to say something about the, the whole I want to do it all for my phone thing. You could, but you probably shouldn't, as basically what Nicole said, and I'm going to expand on that really, really quickly. Um, if you were doing nothing but v-logging, v-blogging, right, so you're doing video blogging, 
And you're basically streaming that to, let's say, something like YouTube, and then your blog, your WordPress blog, is another little blog that sits there, and all you do is copy and paste uh, the embed code and maybe put a, like a, a two or three sentences of notes to go with the video and any kind of links to go with the video. You probably logistically could do that, and you would still be better off with a laptop. But that's about the only way I see it working. The only way I see this working, and remember, there's a niche for everything, and the Thousand True Fans model, would be as if the entire point of your blog is it's all done on a phone. If somehow you figured out how to market that uh, to phone geeks, then maybe. And I still think you'll hate yourself, because it's just logistically a pain in the ass to communicate on a meaningful level with a phone. But some people, I guess, could do it. Um, budget. Uh, my response to if it was a budget thing, and you may not like hearing this, is it's a freaking business, so bullshit. Now, I'm not saying you need to go out and buy a $2,000 computer, but on a lark, I just want to say, you know, what can I find for a decent, like, 15-inch used refurbished laptop that would be fine for browsing the Internet, the most basic photo editing, which, by the way, you can use, like, Image Flip to make your memes if you wanted memes for your site, Uh, and you can give them like three bucks a month or something, and I'll take their their logo off it, by the way. Um, but you would actually be able to function like you actually had a business. $249. Uh, a year hosting and domain name is going to cost you something like that, too. So, like, I, I would say, like, if you're serious about wanting to make something into a business and you're not willing to invest $250, bucks, you are not serious. I mean, I know that sounds harsh. But it, it, people that want to start their business for no money, I think, are just, in this day, unrealistic and unappreciative of the opportunity that $1,000 of invested uh, money affords you. Um, if you look at it, it's $250 for a computer, $250 for your first year hosting and, and, uh, and, and domain name, $250 into uh, website design, and $250 in a slush fund for whatever I need over the next year. What you can do with that as a, as a, a blogger, as a video uh, producer, as an audio producer, whatever, is insane. There's so much that is available for free or very little money. So don't be afraid to invest. I have a link to this. It's a Dell uh, 13565 uh, 15.6-inch laptop, 7th generation AMD dual-core A6 processor, Uh, with a 500 gigabyte hard drive for 249 bucks. I mean, I look at that and I think I probably should pick one of those up to have an extra computer in the house. Um, so I've, I've got that linked in the show notes today. That's on Amazon. Check out like Tiger Direct on used laptops and stuff. I bet you can pick something up for under $200. That will be so much better than the $1,000 phone that does a great job as a phone. Now, I think your phone's all you need for phot photography and video. I really do. For blogging, yeah, I no problem with that. Uh, I'd recommend you know a little tripod for your phone and a little lapel mic uh, or something like that so that you can have good audio. Your, the earplugs that come with it are great to use as a mic, but if you're going to be in front of the phone, uh, then they generally they're not really long enough to make that work out well. So um, you can you know get that for under 15 bucks, you know, a cheap lapel mic. It'd be about 15 bucks and a little tripod attachment, you know, like another 15 bucks. So there's your 250 out of your miscellaneous, if you're even going to be doing that. Photography, phones do incredible photography. I mean, look how the most popular photography website in the world today is Instagram. 
And it's all from phones, right? That's their shtick. Uh, so those are just some additional thoughts on that. Now, I, you know, we had a lot on finance, business, economics today. I guess we're going to uh, continue on that because now I've got uh, kind of a lightning round uh, for John Pugliano on investing in finance questions. Hey, TSP listeners, I've got a bunch of questions here. I'm going to try and do a lightning round and run through them and get as many answers out as I can. So here we go with the first question. Andrew has a question about how he can exit his current positions that he has at Vanguard if he's concerned about some type of a market correction or some type of 2008 stock market bubble where, you know, the market collapses 50%. How can he get out of his current positions at Vanguard that are within his IRA and his Roth retirement account without actually withdrawing the money or taking a penalty or, you know, getting hit up with taxes or things like that. Well, Andrew, the answer there is very easy. You simply liquidate those funds. You call up Vanguard, you tell them you want to sell them, you want to get out of those funds, and they will just move you over to some type of a cash equivalent position. It's simply moving it out of the S&P 500 fund or whatever you were in and moving it over to some type of cash equivalent account, which could be an FDIC-insured bank savings account. It might be a money market fund. It could be some type of a guaranteed income fund. It all depends on what your discount broker or your plan administrator or Vanguard is offering specifically to you. And you can ask them what that money is going to go into. But it's safe. It's as close as you're going to get to being in cash. It's often referred to as a bank sweep or a cash sweep account because they're sweeping your money from whatever investment you were in and moving it into this cash equivalent. Here's an interesting question from Dave. It seems that Dave has some type of a numbers dyslexia or a learning disability where whenever he looks at numbers, they get kind of jarbled and mixed up in his mind. And it's really frustrating to do budgets or to manage his money. Well, Dave, you mentioned that you're married. And so my number one suggestion would be, since you know this is a problem and it's a weak spot for you, I would have your wife take over as much of those responsibilities as possible. The great part about being married is that in most cases, our spouse has strengths and abilities that we don't have, and we should take advantage of that. The two of you can talk and collaborate and talk about your big goals and your objectives, your long-term purchasing plans. You can do all that collectively as a couple and come up with those goals and objectives. But when it really comes down to doing the math, tracking your return on things and where you should be allocating your money, yeah, let her handle that budget part of it. And then she can monitor things, make sure you guys are staying within the structure that you've put together. The other advice I'd offer to you, Dave, is to leave yourself a wide margin of error. Before you go out and make a big purchase, or for that matter, I guess, before you spend anything other than the money that you have in your pocket, that you're double-checking with your wife and making sure that you're sticking within those spending limits and those financial goals that you and her had already pre-decided on. That way you don't have to worry so much about the specific numbers. You just have to worry about the overall big discipline of reining in your spending and making sure you're not going out and buying something unless you really need it. Daniel has a question about how much time he should spend learning and managing his own portfolio. 
Now, Daniel's a busy guy. He's working on his homestead. He's apparently been studying and trying to learn real estate investing over the last three years. He mentions here that he's made several offers, but he doesn't actually say that he's purchased anything in real estate. So I'm not sure how much of an active real estate investor he is or if it's just a, a training process for him. But he wants to know how much time he should be spending on managing his portfolio. Daniel, you didn't say how much money you have, and that's really what it all comes back to. Because when you manage your time, it's all about return on investment. Are you adequately compensating yourself for the amount of time you're spending in these endeavors? Let's just say you're getting somewhere between a five or a ten percent return on your money. If you're talking about ten thousand dollars, that's not very much money, and so you shouldn't be committing a great deal of time and energy. To generate that five hundred or a thousand dollars, if you're starting with a very small investment portfolio, then the best way to build your net worth is to not worry about investing that money, but rather by doing things like maxing out your Roth IRA contribution and putting that fifty-five hundred dollars in every year, because that'll be the quickest way to get that nest egg to grow and to make it significant enough to where it's worth you putting time and effort into it. Dean has a question about investing for his 11-year-old son's education. Right now, his son wants to be a veterinarian. Of course, that could change. But if he does want to go that route, that's very expensive. And so Dean's concerned about that. But then also, you know, he doesn't want to put money into a 529 plan because obviously, if his son changes his mind and he decides not to go to college, then that 529 plan would be affected with penalties if the money's used for other things beyond education. So he's asking about some alternatives. I'm not a fan of 529 plans. I don't like the restrictions put on them, not only from what you can do with the money in terms of education, but also I have found that most of those plans are very limited in what they allow you to invest in and number investment choices you can make in a year. I've seen a lot of plans where you can simply only make one investment designation for a whole 12-month period. To me, that's absurd. It's your money. I think you should be allowed to do with it pretty much what you want. And so my thoughts in terms of saving for children's educations kind of go along this route, and this is what I've done for myself. I'm a proponent of fully funding your retirement plan. You as the parent, putting as much money as you can into tax advantage vehicles like a Roth IRA, where you're saving for your own personal retirement. And then what people aren't aware of is that in most cases. You can withdraw from your retirement account penalty-free to pay for your kids' education expenses. So that's kind of the route that I would follow. I'd max out my own retirement. I'd worry about saving my money for me, and then if I have that extra money and I'm able to help my child fund their education, I can take that out of my retirement account and cash flow their education at that time. That way, I maintain control of my money. The other thing that I encourage parents to think about is to not necessarily take on the responsibility of thinking that they have to totally 100% fund their children's ed education. If your kid wants to be a veterinarian and that's going to cost you know a hundred thousand or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for them to set themselves up in a career like that, well, that's all well and good, but I don't know that that's necessarily the parent's responsibility to pay for that. There's a lot of ways that a young man or a young woman can fund their education. Everything from saving up for it, working part-time jobs, getting scholarships, taking on student loan debt, going into the military. There are a lot of options out there, and I think it's a really important part of our job as parents to teach our kids responsibility. And I think a good way to do that is to point your kids in a general career direction that makes sense for them, and to help them and to facilitate them to move in that direction. But not to pay for the whole thing yourself.
Let them take on some or all that responsibility. And that kind of takes us to the last question I'll finish up on. Derek is in a unique position where his kids' education will be funded by their grandparents. Now, the grandparents are selling their home. There's going to be a significant amount of money generated from the sale of that home, something in the neighborhood of, you know, in excess of half a million dollars. And they want to set up a trust fund for the education of Eric's two children, which are nine years old and 18 years old. The 18-year-old is currently serving in the military, so we can assume that he's probably got another four years or so before he could use that money. And then obviously the nine-year-old wouldn't start accessing that money for education for another nine years. Derek is wondering the best way to invest that money for the kids. Well, Derek, that's a lot of money, and in the few seconds I have here to answer your question, I really can't give you good specific advice about what you should be doing with that large of a sum of money. But I'm going to tell you this. I would rethink your strategy, and if it were me, I wouldn't be putting hundreds of thousands of dollars into a trust fund to pass on to my kids to use for education or for whatever, where they're going to have access to that money while they're young. And while they're young, I'm talking probably any time under 30. And that may seem harsh, but think about it. Look at all the bad decisions that young people make. So right now, rather than worrying about how to invest that money, because you do have a lot of time in the future to, to make that happen, I'd be thinking about how are you going to structure this trust so that it doesn't destroy these kids. I mean, think about it. If you just hand an 18-year-old $500,000, what are the chances that he's going to make good decisions with it, even if he is a good, mature, solid young man? At that age, you still just lack the worldliness, the wisdom, and the ability to discern how to make good investment decisions. And so for right now, if I were you, I'd be spending a lot of time on figuring out how I'm going to trickle that money to these kids so that they can access it at key times in their life for education, for buying their first home for starting a business or making other type of long-term investments in their life. I would want to maintain control of that for a long time in the foreseeable future because you as the parent, as the adult, hopefully have that discipline and wisdom and knowledge that it's going to take them decades to acquire. Hey, maybe I seem like a harsh controlling parent, making my kids pay for their own education or not wanting to spoil them by giving them large sums of money, but I think that's the right thing to do. Of course, you need to make up your own choices. Hey, as always, thanks for the questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Great stuff and a lot covered by John and not a lot of time there. I think that entire call or, or that entire recording was uh, right at 10 minutes, and it, it covered an awful lot. Um, this brings me to my question today, and it's one of those ones that You know, I always say that Excel never lies, and Excel never lies as long as you actually know how to use it and put the right data in, and you should make decisions in your life based on what Excel says. And what I really mean by that is based on when it's money, you should base it on the actual money because, you know, five bucks here, ten bucks there, a thousand dollars there, uh, three thousand dollars over the life of this decision here, and at the end of your life, It can be, you know, a million dollars more in your retirement, even pretty much spending technically the same amount of money. How you spend it, when you spend it, why you spend it uh, changes those a lot. So Bill, uh, who is really good about listening to me and then challenging me on what I said, sent me an email with a spreadsheet attached. And here's what his text of the email said. 
Why do you recommend that someone save an emergency fund instead of paying down the credit card debt faster? I work the numbers based on someone being $18,000 in credit card debt. If they pay $100 on the credit card instead of saving that money after a year, it looks like they'll be $69 ahead. Two years, they'll be $279 ahead. Three years, $617 ahead. Four years, $1,068 ahead. These numbers are based on 20% interest rate. I understand the idea of having cash in, in the event there's an emergency, but if they get in that position, they could put the emergency on the credit card because they have paid the balance down. I think that the idea should be to pay down the credit card debt and save the interest. What am I missing? Between you and me and the fence post, I have no debt, and this is with owning a home. Uh, other than credit cards, which get paid off every month, so I really do not have a dog in the sun. I was just wondering your position on this issue. Spreadsheet I use as attached. Thanks for the show, Bill. Okay, let's start out with the real numbers. Right. So he said, at the end of a year, you're $69 ahead. For someone $18,000 in debt, that doesn't mean a hill of beans. So even mathematically speaking, the entire question and the entire line of thinking here is so nickel and dime as to be irrelevant. Because in his spreadsheet, which he did an excellent job on, by the way, at 10 months, at 10 months, you are $57 ahead. Now, it doesn't mean you're only $57 ahead on paying off the debt. The debt, in fact, is still close to $1,000 more than it would have been if you put it all on the debt. But you have the $1,000. It's not gone. Bill did a great job of not tricking himself. We've saved the $1,000. So the, the difference is how much interest did we save over that period of time? And the answer is $57. Even if we prorate that across the rest of the time it's going to take to pay this debt off, um, it's still less than 100 bucks. Because what does our emergency fund need to be? $1,000. So why would we even compare the number across 48 months to pay off the loan when we're only going to save the $100 a month if we do $100 a month for 10 months? Does that make sense? In fact, what we should be doing is scraping together every dollar we can, not just $100 a month, and putting it into that emergency fund to get it to $1,000 as quickly as possible. Once that $1,000 as quickly as possible has a quiet, happened, we've been making the minimum payments, let's say, on our debt. Now we take all the money that we were throwing at that, that emergency fund savings as though it was a debt. And we take our smallest debt that we have. Most people are going to be not sitting on one credit card debt of $18,000. They're going to have multiple debts if they're in this problem in the first place. If you don't, great. Then you just take it all and throw it at the eighteen grand, And you, you just keep paying on it. But we take all the money and we throw it at the smallest debt that we have. We don't worry about interest rates. We don't worry about any of that. We throw it at the smallest debt that we have. When that debt is gone, we take all of the money that we were spending on that debt plus the extra payment and we move it and focus it like a laser beam on the next debt as far as size up until we get to the last debt. Generally speaking, most people, the way that they live their lives where they end up in problem with debt, they have multiple debts, and the last and largest debt actually gets paid off quicker than, let's say, the first two or the first one. And that's how it usually works. Some people do have a single big debt, and that's all they have. And again, then we just focus on that, and we keep scraping and edging and, and going at it. Bill's point is, well, why not just, no matter how that structure works, we'll take all the extra money we have and we're going to throw it at the debt. And if we do end up having an emergency, we'll put it on the credit card 
instead of having to take it out of the bank and then repay it. Okay. This is the problem with that. There is some psychology going on here, and it's one of the places Dave Ramsey's methods are big on psychology, and I think sometimes that psychology makes mistakes. If you have $11,000 in debt, and that's all the debt you have, and you have a shit ton of equity on your home, and interest rates on housing, you know, a few years ago, 3%, and he would tell you, don't take a home equity loan, pay your debt off. The reason he's saying that is because nine times out of ten, you'll go back into debt. But if you pay the debt off, you'll suffer and you won't. I tend to agree and disagree with that. Because it's such a financial win to put that into a house debt, assuming you have lots of equity. Assuming that if you go to sell the house a year from now, you haven't just put yourself upside down, which is difficult to do. Lenders don't want to go into that situation. Uh, especially if the refinance actually lowers your mortgage payment. Especially if the refinance actually lowers your interest rate. Because not everybody that has lots of debt has bad credit, right? However, people that have lots of consumer debt do have bad habits. They are generally spending addicts. And this is why if you're going to pay your debt down, you need an emergency fund. Because if you tell a person with a credit card habit, listen, Put all your credit cards away, get rid of them, start paying on your debt. However, if the car needs a new set of tires or something like that, and there's no way around it, and if you have to do it, then use the credit card because you're paying the debt off anyway, so let's get the money on the debt as fast as possible. Here's what's going to happen. You just handed an alcoholic a bottle of Jack Daniels Black Label and said, listen, I know you're quitting And I know your intention is good. And I know that, you know, sometimes when you're quitting alcohol, you know, you, you, so you just have a really bad day and you might need to have a drink. In fact, since this is your first day going clean, you, you, you could have detox symptoms and need to go to the uh, hospital uh, from uh, DTs, from uh, tremors. Uh, it could even be life-threatening. So take this bottle of Jack Daniels just in case, put it in the cabinet, And it's there in case. How long is it going to be before that alcoholic just drains that bottle? And when you tell somebody that's got a spending problem, that credit card's there for emergencies, emergencies go from being a very narrow-focused thing to being a very broad idea. Well, the kids needed this project for school. I bet you could have figured out how to not spend money on that. Well, they really deserve to go, too. I bet you could have figured out that they didn't or some other way to pay for it. And that's how you got in the problem in the first place. So I don't believe in handing a crack pipe to a recovering crack addict. I don't believe in handing a bottle of whiskey to a recovering alcoholic. I don't believe in handling, handing some methamphetamine to a recovering meth addict. I don't even believe in handing, you know, some alcohol to a recovering meth addict. The, and that's... You know, you're just changing the form of the drug, you still have the drug problem. So when we take the approach of putting the $1,000 emergency fund away, we convince ourselves that it can be done. And we also develop the habit of savings. And we get a feeling from that, a psychological feeling, because money, 90% of, of, of money is mental. Only 10% is mechanical and physical. 
90% is mental, how we choose mentally to deal with these situations and how we think about money. So we're, we're trying to fix the problem not just mechanically by getting rid of the debt, but mentally by the way we think about money. After we go through the process of paying off our debt, we've managed to do something during that process we never thought possible, which is save more than $1,000. Because if you do this, you will. You'll save more than $1,000. You'll end up like, we have an extra $25 right now. Instead of putting on the debt, let's, let's throw a little bit more in savings. And you'll probably end your walk with a couple thousand dollars in savings. And you'll be taking a big piece of your income and applying it to debt. And what will probably happen when you see that debt balance go to zero, you're going to put your hands in your face and you're going to cry. I don't care if you're the biggest, toughest, badass on the planet. It will be like being released from prison. I can tell you from experience, you will have a feeling that you, you cannot even begin to understand until you have it. And once that's done, you'll probably turn to yourself and say, well, this is how much we were paying a month in the debt on the last day we did it. We can now take half of that and put it into our general budget of our lives and have some of the things we've been giving up. We can take the other half and put it in that savings. In addition to that 10% that goes into our investments. And we can, you're going to build up. If you follow this process the right way, you're going to build up that 90-day emergency fund. Because remember, it's a $1,000 emergency during the debt elimination cycle. And it's a 90-day emergency fund that we want to get to as fast as possible after it. You're going to build it up so quickly that you're never going to have to use a credit card ever again for an emergency. If you use a credit card ever again, it'll be like what I do. When I go on vacation, the rental car companies have gotten stupid with their policies about debit cards, and that's the only time I use the credit card. And when we get home, it gets paid off in full. And I mean, it's literally like, you did pay it, because Dorothy pays all the bills. You paid it, right? Yeah, I did. Okay, so you're sure you paid it? Yeah, I paid it. Leave me alone. Okay. Next day, hey, you paid that credit card. I mean, I'm literally like, I'm like that about nothing, but I'm like that about credit cards. And because that, that emergency fund is there, and now it's 90 days of emergency fund, we're not going to rob the investment, the retirement account the portion that's mine to keep from the richest man in Babylon, we're not going to like lose a job and cash out our 401k and pay a penalty on it because, well, we just have to to get by because now we have that 90-day emergency fund. It's probably going to be the case that you're going to go, wow, that was actually not so hard to do, and that emergency fund is probably going to become something more like six months over another year. And then you're going to have the ability to turn to your financial advisor and say, I really think that we can do better than 10% on our retirement savings. And you're going to be saving more like 20% on your retirement savings. And you're still going to have more money than you did for all the time you were going through that. And every raise is actually going to improve the quality of your life. But if you take the approach, and even if you manage to scrape through it, and the day you pay off your debt, you don't have a dollar in savings, none of that stuff's going to happen. And then something will happen. And then you'll put it back on the credit card. And then you'll be like, we just went through all of this, and this was so hard, and I just don't care right now. And I'll, we'll just pay the minimum this one time. I'm telling you, it's like an addict who finally, after two years of being clean, they're at a party, and someone hands them a crack pipe and... They're off the wagon, you know. The alcoholic that, 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 that you know goes into the bar and he intends not to drink, and 
His buddy that doesn't really care about him, who's not really his buddy, says, just one, man, it won't hurt you. And the next day he's, he's waking up in a puddle of his own vomit on a bathroom floor somewhere. This is what happens. There's a psychology component to this. And every addict thinks, well, not me, I'll be able to handle it. Some are, most aren't. This process works, I recommend that you follow it. But kudos to Bill for putting together a very sophisticated spreadsheet that made his, his, his financial case well, but ignored the psychological reality of the situation and also took some assumptions in the play that really aren't there. Like, we shouldn't just be making an extra $100 payment on that credit card debt. We should be, like, selling so much crap and getting rid of it to get rid of that debt. The kids are afraid we're going to sell them. We should be eating rice and beans every night, and then when we're tired of rice and beans, we switch it to beans and rice. That's Dave's stuff. I don't want to steal it from him. But I agree with him on that. That That's that's what it takes to get out of debt. And, and even if you're going to do the debt consolidation thing, like using a home refinance or something to do it, and it financially makes sense, I think you should you know knock out half of it first and then really save a bunch of money. You know, If you can knock out half your debt, and then it makes financial sense with a spreadsheet to consolidate it into your mortgage, and you, you make the commitment at that point, you have a couple thousand dollars in savings, you roll that over, it reduces your monthly payment. Because sometimes, I've, I, you know, we did it in a different situation where we took some debt, we rolled it into the, the mortgage, and the mortgage interest dropped, and with a refinance of the mortgage, the mortgage payment went down $180. How do you not do that? Well, we're going to take that $180 plus all the money that we've been paying on the debt, and we're going to cram that into our, our, our 90-day fund of straight savings until it's there, and we're not going to touch it until it's there, and we're going to shortcut this entire thing and improve our financial situation long term? Yeah. But that was the person that was able to go to the 30-day um, you know, rehabilitation clinic instead of the 90-day rehabilitation clinic. They still needed help. If you're in consumer debt, you need help. It's a self-managed program, but you've got to work the program or the program won't work for you. And, and I'm telling you, it's if you were capable of doing it any other way, you wouldn't be in the situation that you're in. So that's that's why I make that recommendation. That's why Dave Ramsey you know, built it into the core of his debt snowball program. By the way, on the blogging one, um, I took a deeper look at that Dell laptop, and I'm, I'm going to leave it up in the show notes today, but I really don't recommend that you buy it. Um, I was trying to do that on the fly and point out you could buy a, a decent laptop for under 300 bucks. It probably is. You know Amazon's return policy. If, if yours sucks, send it back. Um, there's some negative reviews and some great reviews on it. I think any kind of low-end computer, that's how it's going to be. You need a place with a good return policy. But I mentioned Tiger Direct, so I got over to Tiger Direct and said, What can I do in the two to three hundred dollar range? Um, I found one for you uh, guys that might need a low end laptop. It's an HP Pavilion. It's a fourteen inch uh, notebook, uh, four gig of RAM. Um, great looking little computer for actually less money two hundred thirty two dollars and ninety nine cents. So if you're that person that's trying to start up a business and you don't have a computer at home. Um, I, I think you're so far ahead with a laptop, but that's a, that's it's a much better 
looking at the specs and everything overall, it's a much better machine. And Tiger Direct stands behind their stuff. If they ship you one that ends up dying out of the box or something, they're going to replace it. Uh, if they run out, because sometimes they do run out of the individual model, they'll replace it with something comparable. I've, I've never had that problem, but I know people that have. And I've bought a lot of stuff from Tiger Direct over the years, and they're a great company. I don't have an affiliate link or anything with them. Uh, they don't pay me any money. I just think that it's kind of always where I go first when it comes to computers. So I wanted to make that change for you. You can look at them side by side and probably figure out, even if you're not a computer guy, why I would recommend the HP over the Dell in this situation. All right, with that, if you want to help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's where you'll find all my Amazon reviews, uh, and you can see all the stuff that I've reviewed over the years. Uh, you can see it all broke down by uh, individual categories that are in alphabetic order. There's a link where you can see the deals of the day on Amazon, and there's a link where you can click to see the current item of the day, whatever I've reviewed. Uh, unfortunately, the item that I put up this morning to kind of give everybody a, a heads up on is no longer on what the Amazon calls a lightning deal. So they had it on a lightning deal for like 20% off. Uh, which was down about eight bucks, saved you about two bucks a unit on these things. I know a bunch of people on Facebook that follow me uh, already said they picked a couple up today, but it's not expensive anyway. It's only ten bucks anyway, uh, brand new. It's made by Anchor. It is a 24 watt dual USB uh, car charger with power drive. Uh, so this is a, a little plug-in USB device to go in your vehicles to charge your iPhone, your Samsung, etc. This is the best one I have found without, like, you know, selling a kidney for a freaking charger. Um, my full review of it is on the website. Uh, this is the one that's in my Toyota 4Runner and in my uh, Ford pickup truck. Um, what I usually do with it is I have uh, the Anchor backup battery, uh, the, the, the big power pack that I recommend uh, for having backup power. And I have that plugged into the slower of the two ports, And then I have a second cable plugged into the top port on it, and I plug my phone in there. And if anybody gets in my vehicle that wants to charge their device, you can either unplug the power pack for a bit, or if you don't want to, you can plug the power pack into their device. Uh, and that actually even gives you more charging capability because the Anchor Pack has multiple output ports on it. Um, this little charger, since I've put it up, has sold in the hundreds Now, I never know who buys anything, but I know that people buy and how much they buy. Hundreds and hundreds of these have been bought by this audience. I'm telling you, if I, if I recommend something and somebody gets a bad one, I get an email about it. Now, usually when it's on Amazon, it's something like, I got a bad one, I returned it to Amazon, there was no problems, or uh, they sent it back, uh, you know, a new one and fixed it. I have not heard a word and, and at the quantities, it's incredible. Not a word about this other than they're great. I bought two more. So check this one out. Again, it's the Anchor USB uh, car charger. It's got fast charge for your Galaxies and stuff like that. iPhones don't have that fast charging capability, but uh, it has got a lot of horsepower to it for a little device. Works great. As soon as you put it in your hands, you'll know why you're paying $10 bucks for one instead of 5 bucks in the discount bin at Walmart. The, the, the build on it alone shows you the difference in the quality. Again, Anchor, incredible company. They always stand behind everything. Uh, that's why I always recommend their products, A-N-K-E-R, no matter what you're looking for in the world of like cell phones and, and, and backup charging stuff and stuff like that. They are my absolute favorite. You can find them at tspaz.com or the main website, the survivalpodcast.com, and just skim down. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today, we talked a lot about 
the song of the day today without talking about it. Because the song is Money by Pink Floyd. You know, money, it's a gas. I think a lot of people don't really know that this song is actually a pretty negative view of money. It's about how money kind of screws up our lives. Uh, especially if you're like a mega rock star and you have more money than you know what to do with and how it can really screw you up then. And the old saying that money is the root of all evil. The truth, though, is money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. I don't hate money and I don't love money. But I really think a lot of people that claim they want money hate money. I often say, why do you hate money? Um, money is a symbol for energy. Money is a thing. Money is the way that we pay our bills. Money is the way that we acquire things. Money is the means by which we exchange goods and services with each other. The way that we show that another party that we appreciate the value they brought to us. Money of itself is not bad. However, money is one of those swords that indeed has two edges. The irrational pursuit of money can destroy your life. The love of money above the love of family and your own life can destroy your life. You can be a very wealthy person with a very miserable life. But the disrespect of money is the edge of the sword that cuts in the opposite direction. The misappropriate use of money Money is very powerful. It's incredibly powerful. And a psychopath might take a gun and kill a bunch of people with it out of straight-up malice, but a fool might injure someone that they never intended to with a gun. A fool might injure themselves or kill themselves out of stupidity with a gun or maim themselves, blow their leg off, something like that. That's because guns are powerful. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't own guns. It means we should understand them, respect them, and follow the rules that go along with them. Guess what we should do with money? We should have money, we should respect money, and we should follow the rules of money. And then money can be a positive force in our lives and allow us to be a positive force in the lives of others. It amazes me that there's two camps on money. One thinks money seems to be the greatest thing in the world and doesn't appreciate the damage it can do. And the other thinks money sucks, but they always seem to want some more. The biggest people that are always telling you you should be giving your money away are the ones that think you should be giving it to them. None of it works that way. Money, again, is really a symbol for energy. It's, it, it, I, I am a school of thought. People are, what economics school of thought are you? Really, it's thermoeconomics it is, is what I teach and what I believe. And, and what I believe, not only believe, but I, I, I feel like I know is the case. That's, that's where all money gets its value. It gets its value from the fact that two people will exchange something with it. And anything that we exchange for required energy, whether it's physical work done by a person or the, or the, the energy necessary to produce something or mine something out of the ground, that's how money works. Money's not the root of all evil. I don't even think love of money is the root of all evil. There's plenty of people who have done evil. There's nothing to do with money. Money is a force. Money is a power. It can do amazing things, and it can cause amazing harm. How we treat it has a lot to do with how it will treat us and those around us. With that, I hope you enjoy your weekend. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
certainly wasn't right. Why? He wasn't coming on stage.